0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Pleasure to be here. Actually, I'm a Kiwi. I uh, originally, I originally, one person claps. That's good. I originally come from uh, uh, Christchurch. I grew up there, uh, and uh, I went to Australia. Um. But that was before all the earthquakes happened and I came back and I saw the devastation and after that I came to this conclusion, the safest place in New Zealand to live is Australia. (laughs) Uh, We've been there 30 years. Uh, Our children have grown up there, they're all Kiwis as well. Uh, And We have now got 10 grandchildren and we are well established and unfortunately we will not be coming home. Australia is now our home, just to let you know that. Uh, I think I've lost about half the congregation in those comments, so i better start before I lose the other half. It's, it is a real pleasure to be here this morning. I do appreciate my friendship with Don and Karen, or our friendship, should I say, and uh, it's just been great to build a relationship um, with someone who I feel has similar values and similar heart, and it's not easy to find people who have the same values, and can speak something into your church that you know you're not gonna have to go through and undo later on. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great, so it's a pleasure that Don has invited me here to share. I, I wanna share this morning on a series that I did on the Book of Ruth. Uh, it's, Four chapters, so four sessions. I am not going to do the four sessions today, just to let Don. He's given me the time, and they tell me that this gets switched off after the time is up. So um, I know when to stop. So when it switches off, I will step down. All I want to do today is to take some of the highlights from that book so that we can appreciate it. Now, the first thing, if you want to understand the book of Ruth, you've got to understand the purpose of Ruth. And firstly, it is not a love story. You got that? If you think it's a love story, it's not. In in Hebrew uh, tradition, they say Boaz had before this time had 70 children. Now, that's that's not biblical. That's Jewish tradition. And one of the reasons for that is you've gotta understand to be a person of high status in a community, you will never be that if you have no children. And Boaz, if you read the story, is a man of high status. So he must have children, so it's not a love story about an old man who's been waiting around all these years for the love of his life. Uh, And this young Moabitess woman comes along and he falls in love and they get married. That is not the story. It is also not written to be an analogy uh, between that Boaz is is a picture of Christ, our kinsman redeemer, and Ruth is a picture of the church, uh, which mostly when we look at that means us ourselves. It's not really, it's not written for that purpose. So to understand the purpose of why it's written is important to understand what this book says. You agree? One person agrees. We're there. Even Don didn't say, yes, I'm in trouble now. Um, So what was the book written for? Firstly, this is the only book in the Bible named after a non-Jewish woman. That's actually quite significant when you think about it because the Jewish people only valued Jewish people, not Gentiles, I can say that because I have Jewish people in my church and they actually let me know that, that's what it's like. And uh, so that's the first thing now. Secondly about this book, every Pentecost and every synagogue from the time of Jesus to now, this book is read every Pentecost. Isn't that amazing? A book written about a non-Jewish woman is the book they read at every Pentecost festival. That's the second thing, so why was the book written? That's the question we first have to ask. The book was written, or should I say, the story was developed because the books were never written first, the story is always spoken. It is an oral society, so in the first century world, only about 9% of the population could read or write. Socrates said this, do not teach people to read because they will lose the ability to remember. And if I look at us today, I think that's true. A young boy in the first century world, Jewish boy, could recite the first five books of the Torah by heart. Can you do that? No, because we've lost the ability to remember. So the story is first, spoken and then later it is written. So why was this story developed? It would have happened at the time when the house of Saul and the house of David were fighting to see who would become the king of the whole of Israel. And this story would have been developed in the response to what the house of Saul was was saying and that is simply this, David cannot be king because he has a Moabitess great-grandmother Ruth, what's so significant about that? Because very simply this, the, the Torah teaches that if you have a Moabitess in your background, you are not part of the children of Israel until 10 generations. So if you can trace back in your ancestry to 10 generations and in that you have a Moabitess person, you are not part of the children of Israel. So how can David be king if he's not even part of the children of Israel? Because his great-grandmother is Ruth, who is a Moabites, that's the first thing. And so you you have the story develop as a response to that and the two, the reason why you know that is at the end it gives you a genealogy. You ever read the last chapter of Ruth? It has a genealogy and it starts from the son of Judah called Perez and it goes through to David. And I've always asked the question, why did they start at Perez and not Judah? Because Judah is the one we all know, and it's like a flag person, so you go down there. Uh, why start with Perez? Very simply, count the number of generations. It is exactly 10 generations. And so the argument is that on the side of the male side of David, for 10 generations, there is no Moabites, or no Moabite person in his lineage. So he is able to be part of Israel. And their argument is twofold for Ruth. Ruth is on the female line, and it doesn't matter on the female line, only the male line. And secondly, they write a story to show you the quality of this person, Ruth, and this house of Boaz. And that is the thing that makes this book so good because it gives you an insight into a family that produces a David. It's three generations before David. But what it does, it shows you something of the values and who this family was. You see, when God looked down to choose a king, he didn't just look down and see, oh, here's a nice little boy playing on his harp, looking after some sheep. He looks good enough, I'll take him and make him king. No, David had grown up three generations at least, in a family which had some amazing values. And because of those values, he was able to rise to become kings. I wanna suggest to you today, the values that we build in our family for our children are more important than looking for leaders. Because if you build the right values, you will eventually get leaders of the quality of David. And my thesis, if I should say today, is simply this Build into your family, and I mean both your natural family here and your church family, the values of Boaz. And you will see rise up in your church, in your families, people who have the quality of David, who can change a nation. There was a man that I uh, used to listen to his tapes. His name was uh, John Maxwell. And he was a man, on le- talked on leadership. And every time he talked, he said this. He said, everything stands or falls on leaders. But the book of Ruth teaches us this. Everything stands or falls on values. And I want to say, I think uh, the book of Ruth is actually has more authority than the words of a man. And so I want to come to you today and just talk to you a little bit on this. Firstly, when you look at a book like Ruth, the problem we have is that we live in the f- 21st century world, don't we? And we look at scripture through the eyes of a 21st century person, and we interpret it from that perspective, but it is not written to you and I. It is written to people, or it was the recipients are uh, many, many centuries ago, and their world is not our world. So the problem is we can read it incorrectly or we can add or not see things if we do not understand the world they are in. Now one of the good things that I have in my church is that we are not a white church or a monocultured church. We are very mixed as you've just heard. And we have people from many different backgrounds and when you talk, you pick up different understandings because of the, the background they come from. And recently, as I said, we've had a, a Jewish family become part of our church. And uh, they talk to us, and they let us know what it is like in their world. And the very fact is, I'll explain this a little bit. They are not Jews by faith. They are Jews by ancestry. They are actually ones who, follow, who followed the teachings of John the Baptist. They are called Mandamians. And the thing is this, because they are a minority group, their identity is seen in their culture. So from the first century to now, their culture has basically not changed. So their world is different to the Jewish world of today and they actually live more and their mentality is more like a first century Jewish person. So when they talk to me, it gives me such an insight into the times when the New Testament is written. Now this goes before that, but some of the things are very, very good to understand. So I've got an advantage on many people because of that. So it's, it, there is a value having a multicultural church, just to, I'll let you know that, even in your study. So you, you come to, to Ruth. Now Ruth is a Moabite. Test. The story starts in chapter one, where she is in her country. She's living with her mother-in-law Naomi, and uh, in the family, uh, Elimelech. The husband dies. The two sons die, and she is left uh, with Naomi and Orpah. The three of them are left there. The only ones left in this family. And then Naomi hears that there is food now in the land, so uh, 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 so she decides to go back, and the two daughters decide to go with her and uh, i was talking we were doing this in a home group and one of the young ladies who is a Mandamian jewish background said to me you know this story is quite strange and this is really interesting to understand you see see in our world she says a daughter-in-law never loves their mother-in-laws in fact they normally hate their mother-in-laws so you have naomi a daughter-in-law wanting to go back with her mother-in-law to a country she does not know and to a people she has never met. Why? Because of a relationship. She said, on top of that, in our world, he said, if a family has lost three people by not natural death, then there's bad luck on that family in their world, in this world that Naomi and Rutheran, bad luck is on that family. You never stay with a family who has bad luck. You want to move. The third thing about this family is that the two daughters have not had children for 10 years. They've been married for 10 years, no children. Now, not a problem in our world, but in that world, you don't have children, you are not a person of value in the family. Get rid of her. I know people in my church who come from, uh, actually from Nepal, who have been told by their parents, get rid of your wife because she can't have children and get another one. Because having children is very, very important because it's the next generation. You give me a note when the time's getting close because I've got no idea how much time I've got, okay. Um, so, so, what was that? Okay, I don't know what it looks like, so it's fine. <laughs> Just turn the mic off. Um, so th- this is the background of the situation that they're in. Um, th- fourthly, in this situation, in this world, daughter-in-laws never become really part of the family. I have known once uh, Middle Eastern people in Sydney when they have got together for serious family discussions and the daughter-in-law came along, the family were offended because she has no right to be there because she is not part of the family, even though she has produced four children for the family. She is not part of the family. But you have a story here where two girls have so connected with their mother-in-law that they want to follow her back to a people they do not know. It shows you an amazing ability, or what Naomi had in the sense of being able to impart her values and who she was to Ruth. She did not treat these two girls like daughter in laws, she, she treated them like daughters, and they were connected. You know, She is one of the greatest evangelists there is because she was able to bring her daughter-in-laws to a place of wanting to follow. Now, you know the story how Orpah goes back. It wasn't because a lack of connection. I believe if you read the story, it was that she realized if she went back, the likelihood of getting married was extremely low and she would never have children. She would never have the things that were on her heart. So she turned back. And we have... The great words of Ruth entreat me not to leave you, but where you go, I will go. Where you, you know, where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God, and I will be, 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 you know, may God do greater to me than He has done to you if I do not, you know, die where you die. If you if you'd read it in the Hebrew, the language goes like this up to that point, and then it's bang, 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 and then it's gentle again. And it just highlights this one part of the text in that it is the best picture of conversion in the whole Bible. There are three great conversion pictures one is Naomi, sorry, Ruth. Second one is. Rahab, you read that story. It's a great picture of conversion. And the third one is the picture of the Gibeonites. One is the conversion of a low caste woman, Ruth. The other one is of a high caste woman, uh, Rahab, where her whole family is converted. The other is a conversion of a whole nation. Very interesting study if you want to do it. But Ruth is one of the greatest pictures of conversion. You see, when we talk about conversion, many of us get the idea conversion is repentance. We turn and go in the other direction. The only problem with that is most of us don't know what direction we're going in, so how can you turn and go in the other direction? But the book of Ruth here gives us the three ingredients of a genuine and strong conversion. Firstly, there is a change of God. Secondly, there is a change of family. And thirdly, There is a change of land. This was what creates the identity for a person. New Testament says we are new creations, correct? That our old has gone, the new has come. We have this concept. But do we fully understand what it means to change from the new to the old as you get a new identity? And in the, the first century world, your identity is wrapped up in three things. The God you serve, the land you live in, and the family you come from. You change those, you change your identity. And actually it's not changed much today if you really think about it. The first one, she changes her God. She doesn't do what everyone else does in those days. Her God is Chemos. it is the God of the Moabites, it's the God they fight under that if they win, he's the great God that gave them the victory. And any battle in that time was not a battle between armies, it was a battle between gods. And so their God was Chemos. Now, if you didn't like the God that much, it didn't help you much, what you did is you got another God and you put it in your array of gods and you worship that plus Chemos, You never got rid of Chemos, but you added gods that helped you. Ruth doesn't do that. She exchanges her God Chemos for the God Yahweh. Your God will be my God. That's exactly what we are to do. We had to change our gods. You said, Well, I've only got one God. Well, sometimes we value things sometimes greater than God. Comes around when the offering is given. How much, you know, how much do we serve Mammon? How much do we serve things which are not our God? One God she had was Yahweh. So she follows him and him alone. She changes her God. Secondly. She changes her family. I think this is amazing. She leaves her people and goes and becomes part of another people. Now, doing that makes her a traitor. She can never go home to her land. It is entirely cut off. In those days, you do that, you're a traitor. So she does that. She leaves her family You know, she's had one of the most amazing experiences with Naomi where this Jewish woman has made her part of her family and given her equal status. Everything is the same. She goes back to the land of Israel and she settles there in Bethlehem. Now, how is she treated there? How did she expect to be treated? The same as Naomi treats her? Wouldn't you expect that? But she's not, if you read the story. You come to the time when Boaz talks to her and she bows prostrate and she says to him, why do you speak to me like this? He said, I am less than a slave, I am just a foreigner. Now for her to do that, you must understand that she is not treated equally in the land of Israel. She is treated lower than a servant. She is a nobody in the land but yet she stays part of those people. It really interests me when people say, I follow Jesus, but I don't want to be part of the church. What are they saying? I want to follow the God, but I don't want to be part of the family. Something's wrong. Well, you don't know how they treated me. You know when I go to church what they say about me? I'm not going to a place like that. You know, Naomi, sorry, Ruth, was treated worse than any person in any church would ever be treated. But she remained part of that community. That was her people, and she was prepared to stay. I believe a good conversion causes us to go much further than a conversion, which is shaky, you see, many today don't believe conversion means a change of family, that we have to belong to a new family. There is a scripture in the New Testament that I, I love it. You know, he who gives up houses, mother, father, children, brothers, sisters will receive, what? A hundredfold in this lifetime. You know that scripture? I love the way the prosperity doctrine presents it. You know, if you give up a house, God's going to give you a hundred houses in this lifetime. Wow. Yeah, who wants to own a hundred houses? Here's the success story of how to do it. Give me your house. Not a problem. And God will give you a hundred more. Sounds good, doesn't it? But they don't give you the whole story. He said he'll give you a hundred fathers and a hundred mothers and a hundred children. You know, take the whole scripture. Now, most of us have trouble with one father and one mother. You're going to have a 100, the Bible says, if you give up your parents. What is it saying? It's saying you have this small family here that when you turn to God may reject you, but there is a greater family with many houses, many parents, everything, that you become part of. This becomes your family. We are from a white, mainly Australian, sorry. My apologies. Kiwi background, but we are highly individualistic. I know because I'm one of those, or was one of those. The problem is when you marry an Asian, you have to change. But that individualistic mindset does not help us understand what true conversion is. We have a new family. And the next one is we have a new land. Well... Still got the same old piece of dirt that I had before. You see, we are part of this nation, but it is not our number one priority. We have a greater land. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us this, that the great men of faith, they were looking for A city or a country, because they were looking for a country, God, a heavenly country, God is not ashamed to be called their God and will give them a heavenly city. What were they looking for? A heavenly country. You and I are not part of this world. We have a heavenly kingdom. Yes, we need to think sometimes. You know why Israel is called the Holy Land? The reason is this, the Jewish people believe they are only caretakers of the land. The land belongs to God, therefore it is holy. Some of the things we need to think about when we come to the whole issues we're facing in this country with the different issues on Maori and Pākehā and all that's going on, the land belongs to God. We need to understand there is a heavenly kingdom that we belong to which is greater than the kingdom we are in here. True conversion embraces all this. This is what Ruth did. And because of that, she has a strong, strong conversion. So we have this, on one side, a great conversion in the book of Ruth which makes this woman stand out. But we have a family which is the house of Boaz, which has some amazing values. And I would like just briefly to go through some of these with you because I think these values are important. If we build these into our families, we will see men and women like David rise in our churches. It won't be a struggle to find people who can do things in the kingdom of God because they will be growing in our churches because of values that are built but one thing about values is if you don't you may have values but if you don't know how to pass them on to the next generation or to the family you're going to be in trouble aren't you they need to be able to be passed on so the question we have to ask is was Boaz able to hand on his values to his household good question would you like the answer oh some people will so at least some of us are still listening okay the first chapter 2 we see the story where Naomi says Ruth says to Naomi look can, we go, can I go out and glean in the fields now it's very interesting that because only the poor people are allowed to and Ruth does not, and Naomi do not come from a poor family but they go and do it. That adds a lot of questions which I can't talk to you about now. But so he goes out and and she goes out and she starts to glean in the field of Boaz. And uh, then later on you hear that Boaz comes to the field and goes to the supervisor, the overseer, and asks this question, uh, you know, who's this woman? And what does he do? He says, oh, that's Ruth, the Moabitess, and she has been gleaning in the, she came and asked permission, and I gave her permission to it. Then she's been gleaning in the field all day. She stopped for a while and went and had a rest in the shade, and now she's back out gleaning. Now we think, well, that's fine. But if you were there and you were part of that world, your first thought would be, whatever is going on here? You see, we, when we harvest crops nowadays, we have machines to do it. So, you know, let's go and harvest today, all harvested. But in those days, it's manual harvest. And when you do manual harvest, it is high labor intensive. It is a lot of work. And in fact, they say in, the, in the, um, the the wheat belts of America in those days, when it was manual harvested, everything closed down. Everyone went out into the harvest. The schools closed and all the kids said fantastic. And they all went out, the doctor closed, the shops closed, everyone went out to the harvest to harvest the grain. The reason for that is if it gets too damp, the grain rain on the stalk will start to germinate, and when that happens, it becomes valueless. You need to harvest it before the moisture increases so everyone is into it. And the supervisor has one job and one job only, and that is to make sure the harvest gets in. He should never focus on anything else. And so the question comes, why is the supervisor focusing on This woman who is gleaning some little bits of grain in the field. It is not his job. It is not important. So why does he do it? And the only reason is this, is because he knows the values of his master and he lives according to the values of his master. When his master comes, he doesn't ask the question, how's the crop going? He asks the question, who is this person? and he can tell him exactly who she is, what she's been doing, and what he has done for her. The values of Boaz have become the values of those who are part of his household. The second place you see it is when he comes to the the, uh, gleaners, not the gleaners, the harvesters, and says, when Ruth is harvesting amongst you, allow her to come and harvest beside you and take handfuls and leave it for her. Now, you've got to understand who the gleaners are. They are day laborers, not the gleaners, sorry, the the reapers. They are day laborers, and they work in the field. Now, a day laborer in that world is about two days away from starvation. They don't have much. And so they are working in the field. And what happens, it's their wives, because they are mainly from poor families who come and glean at the back. And so they are picking up a bit extra for their family. And here comes this woman that their master has said, leave ample for her. Now just imagine you were there, and you were thinking, who's this foreigner? You know, why should I give him her? My wife's there, I should leave some for her so we can be better off. Now they will obey the master. You know, just take a little bit and leave for her. You know, don't, don't let her get too much, but leave a little bit for her. So at least we are obeying the master, but the heart of the master is not being represented. That's what they could have done, but that's not what they do. Because you know, she gleaned enough to take back to support two people for 10 days. Now, if she did that for one month, which is usually the harvest of, you know, the, the length of a harvest, she would have enough to survive on for the two of them for one year. They gave ample. They have the value of their master. So the values of Boaz are been imparted to his household. That is something we have to learn to do. So what are these values? What time am I supposed to stop? 20 past, past, 10 more minutes, okay. The first one is, Boaz actually follows what you call uh, the heart of the law. See, in those days, it's the time of the judges, the law is not being followed. Followed. That's why you know that, because when Ruth comes there, Boaz said, don't go to another field because basically he's saying it's too dangerous. And Naomi also says, stay there because if you go elsewhere, it's too dangerous. Why would it be dangerous to go to another field? Because the law says you are allowed to go and glean in the fields. The simple reason is this, the law is not followed generally in the community. But Boaz doesn't follow what the community says. He follows what the law says. But not just the law, it's actually the spirit of the law that he follows. When you look at the law in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. And if you try to follow all 613, you will fail. Because most, not say most, many of them could not be followed once the children of Israel got to the land of Israel. You couldn't follow a lot of them. So what do you do? One rabbi or teacher before the time of Jesus, uh, just shortly before he was born, was asked, was challenged, say, Can you recite the law and stand on one foot while you're doing it? And he thought about it and he says, Yes, I can. 613 laws standing on one foot. And he said this, you're not gonna be disappointed. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Put his foot down, and he said, the rest is commentary. And it's true. You see, there's two types of law. One's called the apodictic, and I have just quoted that to you, and one is called the casuistic, which is all the rest. And the difference is this. Apodictic, if you wanna know what that means, is simply this. That which does not change under any circumstance. In other words, one in one, equals what? It is apodictic. Doesn't matter what circumstance you're in, one and one will always make two. The apodictic law never changes, but also if you look at it, you can never actually put a measurement on it. It is how you apply the law to every situation. And for us, we need to understand that. We are not here to follow the casuistic law. We are here to follow the apodictic law, which is to apply that law in every situation or that value in every situation that we come into. That is how Boaz acted. He did not follow what general society said. He followed what the apodictic law said. So you have that value that he operates on, and it's a good one. That's the first one. The second one is... Boaz was a man of status, but he did not operate out of status. Hey, what do you mean by that? Firstly, Boaz, we know, is a man of status. He has a supervisor. He is rich. He is wealthy. He is a man of status. See, a man of status, firstly, does not go out into the field. He doesn't need to. He has ones who doesn't do it for him. He stays at home. He does not work. Boaz goes where? To the field. Secondly, he comes along and this If you read it, it tells you, and we would read it, we don't understand what it's really saying. He goes to the women and he greets, oh sorry, to the workers and he greets them and they greet him. Now we think that's fine. But in the recipients of this, we're saying what's going on here? A high status person does not first greet a lower status person. It's always the lower status that is to greet the higher status. But he doesn't do that. He just goes and greets them. He does not operate out of the status of value. I appreciate this value that we have in Australia. We are not status-driven people. But I work in communities and people groups that have high status. And it is so ingrained in so many of the churches that I know that I look at it and I shake my head because that value does not produce the Davids it produces something completely different. Thirdly, a high-status person does not talk to someone who is a foreigner at all, but he singles her out. He talks to her and he invests in her. Amazing when you think about it. Never allow status to become part of a value of our churches. And some churches, we do it. You know, pastors have a higher status, and there, there comes an expectation of how their people should treat them. I'm not saying that so you treat him badly. He's a good man, and he should be treated well. But I know he doesn't operate out of that. Okay, I'm going through these very quickly and just giving you the, some of the outlines. The third thing about Boaz was that he does a lot more than just follow the law. He, where he sees the grace of God working, he invests into it. You see, you look what he does to Ruth, which is not the law. First, he offers her protection while she's in the field. That's not what the law says you have to do. He allows her to glean amongst the reapers and tells the reapers to leave more for her. That's more than the law requires. He invites her to lunch with the workers and to provide enough for her, even to take home. That's more than the law requires. He allows her to drink from the water that is provided for his workers, not for the gleaners. He protects her grain because she gleans more than she can hold for the day. She has to put it somewhere, so someone must look out, look over that to make sure no one steals it. So she, he, she, he does that as well. So he does much more than the law requires. Now he does not do this to everyone. If he did, he would not have any crop for himself because every person would come to his fields knowing we're gonna get plenty if we go there. He does it for her and he tells you why, because I have seen what you have done for Naomi and that you have come under the wings of Yahweh. He knows the grace of God that is on her life and because of that he says, I will invest into that. You know, I believe if we do that sort of thing, we will see so much greater results. But it costs, it costs him to do that, but he does it. Okay, the last one I want to look at in my last three minutes is when Naomi sends Ruth to go and lie at the feet of Boaz. He tells her this, he says, tells her this, put on, your best clothes, wash, I think put on perfume. In other words, look good, smell good, and go down to the threshing floor. That's right, isn't it? Put it in vernacular. Look good. You know what happens on the threshing floor and Hosea tells you? It is the place where the prostitutes operate. Now how does a prostitute operate? She looks good. She smells good. They are the tools of a trade. Ruth is too Look good, smell good. Don't you see a problem here? She is going into a very dangerous situation. And she goes down and she goes to the threshing floor of Boaz and then she lies at his feet and then Boaz wakes in the middle of the night and sees her there. And he says, whoa, what are you doing here? You know, I do not allow a woman on my threshing floor. He doesn't say I do not allow you. He says, I do not allow a woman on the threshing floor. What he's saying is that my threshing floor is a no-go zone for prostitution. He has values, which is what he lives here as a man of integrity. You see, the best thing for Boaz, for himself, would be to say, uh, Ruth, thank you for your offer, but you need to go home. Midnight, going home, across the field, into the village, there's no electricity, there's no lights, it is dark, and a woman traveling alone at that time to the village out from the fields would be assumed she is only out there for one purpose. So if she is seen, her reputation is destroyed. On top of that, she is a Moabitess. Now, do you know how the Moabites destroyed Israel when they came near the land? The women came down and had relationship prostitution with the men and enticed them to worship their gods and God brought judgment. So they have a reputation for prostitution. So if she is seen at night at that time, her reputation is destroyed. If she comes across men at that time, more than her reputation may be destroyed. So Boaz says, stay here. Don't go at this time. Now, I love this because he is putting his own integrity on the line or how people see him. Because you see, if the news gets out that a woman was on the threshing floor of Boaz's house, and not a threshing floor, and not only that, was sleeping in his bed. Just imagine, you know, there's three ways. In my day when you got information out, we didn't have internet and that. It was telephone, telegram, or tell a woman. And the fastest way information goes round in the village is the chat of the ladies when they get together, and you can just hear these two ladies standing say, "You know what I heard today? You know, you know that guy you know, Boaz. He's such a righteous man. Yeah, we all know that. But did you hear what I hear? Last night on the threshing floor, there was a woman in his bed. Really, he's double standard." Boaz was prepared for that to happen to him to protect Ruth. Man, I like this man. And then he comes and he lets her go back just before dawn breaks. Now, for us who live in the city where we have lights and the streetlights, we may not understand this, but I spent a bit of time in the villages in Nepal, up in the mountains, and uh, there's no electricity in those days. And you go to sleep when the sun goes down. You get up when it's dawn, And just before dawn, people start to rise and get up. And they go out and they start to get the grain for breakfast and you hear the different activities. But you know who gets up first? It's the women, not the men. They make the breakfast. They get up and they start pounding the rice and taking the husk off and preparing it for the meal. Oh, I'm over. Can I finish this bit? Thank you. So this is the ideal time to send Ruth back because if she gets back to the village, no one's gonna be asking, what are you doing up at this time? This is the time the women get up. So she is, her reputation is protected. But there is still a problem. How do you get from the threshing floor in the field to the land? Mm. Because anyone walking back from the threshing floor, even at that time, you'll say, what were you doing there? And if he gave her a present of a small amount of grain, everyone will know exactly what she's been doing there, because that's how you pay, get paid for what you do. not money, part of the produce. So what he does, he gives her a huge amount of grain, and it tells us that he has to help to put it on her back. Why that? Simply this, the threshing floor is where the grain is threshed and dried, but it is not stored there, it is stored in the village. So how do you get it from one to A to B? You carry it, not in small amounts, but as big as you can carry, you take it back. So to see a person, a lady, carrying grain early in the morning from the threshing floor to the village, oh, she's just get up, got up early so she can start bringing the grain in for the storage. Valid reason for coming back from there to there. So we see that he protects her in everything he does. I'm going to finish on this last one because I think it's very important. When she comes to Boaz, Boaz is there. He says, you know, this, the second honor that you've given is greater than the first because you did not go to a young man, whether rich or poor, but you came to me. Now, what's the second honor? Is he saying, you know, I'm really honored because you're a young girl and you chose me and not an old person? That's quite flattering. Is that what he's saying? The answer is no. You've got to understand, you'll only understand it when you understand what the first honor is. So what was the first honor? And some people say, well, he never told us. You know it. You see, here she is, a Moabites who joins herself to the family of uh, Elimelech, Uh, is a daughter-in-law, and she decides to come back to protect and build the house of Elimelech. She cares for Naomi, the last member. She looks after her. That is the first honor. The second honor is this, is the fact that she could have married anyone and had children and had security, but if she did that, the house of Elimelech would cease because there would be no heir to take over the family name. It's only if she married the nearest kinsman would the child then become one who could take over the name of that family. Naomi, sorry, Ruth, had a high value of family. Not just her own, but this family that she had committed herself, just as Tamar had the same thing, if you really look at it. She had a high value of family. And Boaz is saying this is the second honor because you chose to invest your life for this family to see it go forward. You know, I think that's a value that we need to build in our churches. It's too much of it is about pathways to uh, positions, pathways to ministry. It's actually all about building the family and seeing the next generation rise to become who they should be, just as David was the great leader. We will see David's and male and female grow in our churches as we build the values of David. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.